This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 92 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending March 2, 2018, the Texas Independence Day edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and myself take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. But first, I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce that this podcast is being sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With this knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's compliance and ethics programs, visit their website, affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, we take a look at the continued fallout and discussion from the Supreme Court's decision in Digital Realty Trust versus Soames. Two corporations received declarations this week, Teradata and Xterran. We visit Bill Coffin, who continues his string of great blog posts. We uh, explore the de-risking issue along the Texas-Mexico border for banks. Frenius Medical Care announces a 200 million euro reserve for an FCPA settlement. We have a fascinating discussion on corporate personhood uh, based upon an article by Adam Winkler in the Wall Street Journal. And then we take a look at a couple of data issues. The first is what are the top five security and compliance trends to watch in 2018. And then we have a piece from Bill Lockwood, excuse me, Ben Lockwood, who explains the difference between big and small data. As always, it's an uh, interesting uh, week, and I hope that you will enjoy it. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 92 for the week ending March 2, 2018, the Texas Independence Day edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay is uh, speaking to us today from uh, where it's always sunny, San Diego. Uh, who's, he's just concluded the, his attendance at the ABA White Collar uh, Conference, so he's going to give us a report on that. And uh, Jay, I suppose uh, it's even sunnier in uh, San Diego than regular Southern California. Yeah, and uh, the the big thing here is I guess there's a huge um, storm brewing on the East Coast, big nor'easter. So uh, a lot of folks from Boston and New York tried to get out last night. But there's a lot of flights uh, being canceled and people are having to hang out. And I've got a, a beautiful view of uh, San Diego Har- Harbor. So there's uh, worse places in America to have to uh, lay over. Okay. Well, Jay, we had a pretty interesting week. So why don't we just jump right into it? Um, I just wanted to note that the commentary and indeed fallout and discussion from the Supreme Court decision last week in Digital Realty Trust versus Soames continues. Uh, I took a deep dive into it, both from the legal perspective and some of the issues uh, from the compliance perspective. But then I also had the chance, Jay, to um, podcast with Roy Snell, um, still president of the SCCE, and then with uh, Matt Kelly, 
And for our listeners who would like to, to really take a deep dive into what the implications of this case would be, uh, I really would really suggest they check out those two podcasts. Uh, the one with Roy is uh, the FCPA Compliance Report, episode 372. The one with Matt is Compliance Into the Weeds, episode 72. And it really gives a sense of how many of the unanswered questions that we have, uh, both for the compliance practitioner, the compliance profession, corporate compliance programs, and even the SEC. So uh, Roy, as always, is very insightful coming at it from a uh, 30-plus year compliance professional and chief compliance officer perspective. Matt uh, really took a look at it, I thought, uh, from a, a more of a ERM regulatory perspective. But when you put those together and um, consider some of the points that I raised in my uh, two blog posts, I think uh, there's a, really a lot to digest. I'm going to uh, have a uh, further podcast on this. I'm going to talk to a um, uh, Stephen Durham, a lawyer who has an extensive whistleblower practice uh, at Labuson Sutro, and uh, get his perspective, and that'll go up in the next week or two. But it, it really continues to resonate. I was on a, a panel at the University of Texas yesterday, uh, Longhorns and Compliance, and uh, this, this case came up for discussion, and the panelists were chief compliance officers who were talking about the responses that they had put in place already to try to keep employees to whistleblow in-house first. So I think this one's going to be here for us, with us for some time, and there's lots to digest. If you're a compliance practitioner or chief compliance officer or other, I would really suggest you check out those podcasts because it, it may give you not only some uh, of ideas of the issues you may face, but also both Roy and Matt and I talked about some of the solutions you can put in place now to help ameliorate some of the effects of uh, the Supreme Court case. So uh, a couple of things, I actually got to spend some time with uh, Steve Durham in uh, person here as well. Oh, great. So lovely guy, and uh, I'm sure he will provide a great perspective on this because of his whistleblower's practice. Um, at the end of your second blog, it looks like from um, maybe today, March 2nd? I don't know. It says, sometimes getting something you think you want is much worse for you than not getting it all. So if you can maybe just kind of clarify quickly, who exactly was pushing for this? And um, now, you know, how did it get up to the Supreme Court? And then how are people, you know, now the reaction is there that it's uh, really going to hurt the corporation. So how, what was the genesis of all this? So there were three separate cases where uh, individuals filed whistleblower lawsuits claiming Dodd-Frank protection, and those percolated up. Uh, they're filed in federal court because it's based on a federal law. Uh, one was filed in the Fifth Circuit Court of uh, the Fifth Circuit District here in the South, which includes Texas. Uh, one was filed in the Second Circuit, your old neck of the woods in uh, uh, Massachusetts and New England. And then we had the uh, the case that went to the Supreme Court, Digital Realty Trust, which was from California, filed in the Ninth Circuit. And in each of those cases, the uh, claimants or the uh, complainants in federal court, plaintiffs, filed actions claiming they were terminated illegally under uh, Dodd-Frank because they claimed whistleblower status. In each of those three cases I mentioned, the um, plaintiffs uh 
blew the whistle internally or reported internally first, and they were alleged to, that they were fired for their efforts um, uh, and filed suit. The companies defended on the basis that Dodd-Frank did not allow um, or protect, rather, whistleblowers who uh, complained or reported internally uh, initially um, or reported internally only, I should say. So uh, that was the basis of the lawsuits, and that was how we got to uh, – the uh, three cases and what happened, Jay, was and why the Supreme Court took it was there was a split in the circuits. The Fifth Circuit and Asada said employees don't uh, who don't whistleblow to the Securities and Exchange Commission do not have uh, whistleblower protection. Uh, the um, I forget the name of the plaintiff in the Second Circuit case, but uh, they ruled an opposite, saying that uh, deferring to the Securities and Exchange Commission, who had interpreted Dodd-Frank to allow either whistleblowing to the Securities and Exchange Commission directly or internally, and then the Digital Realty Trust, which also followed the Second Circuit. So there was a split between the Second, Ninth, and Fifth Circuit, and that's why the Supreme Court uh, probably took the case. Uh, the the group that uh, came up with this theory, of course, was corporate legal department. And here, uh, I would invite you to consider the difference between uh, in function of a corporate legal department and a compliance department. A corporate legal department is charged with defending the corporation. And when uh, a lawsuit's filed against a corporation, generally a legal department and their outside counsel will avail themselves of all legal rights that they would have to defend the lawsuit. And here, uh, they su- argued and argued successfully in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that Dodd-Frank whistleblower protection only came for people who filed directly with the commission. So that's uh, really how that decision got made, whether that was in consultation with the um, compliance to functions of those corporations obviously is not known at this point. I would note, Jay, that uh, GE, who was the defendant in the Asada case, had actually argued to the SEC when it was crafting its rulemaking that the uh, employees should have, have to um, self-disclose internally first. So that was the position GE took during the real rulemaking process. And when uh, GE took the opposite position in court, uh, when the Asada lawsuit was filed. So um, you have corporate legal departments making uh, uh, claims or making de- providing defenses to lawsuits, which is their obligation. But in many ways, these same arguments probably turned around and shot the companies in the foot uh, by now uh, forcing employees who want legal protection to go to the Securities and Exchange Commission and not report internally. So it really is a, a big uh, situation of uh, don't ask for something. You just might get it. Can we say FUBAR? <laughs> we can certainly say FUBAR. Okay. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting because it, it now could just create a, a lot of uh, extra work for the SEC. And, uh, you know, to your point earlier, now the company's not going to uh, enjoy the protection of learning about things first. And if they have to wait uh, you've got a whistleblower internally who's gone to the SEC. Now the company is definitely at advantage, a disadvantage to uh, start remediation and then might open up a whole can of worms uh, if they end up taking some type of termination action and not knowing that this is a whistleblower. So, Jay, we had uh, two declinations announced this week. You want to tell us about those? 
Yep. So um, first one we have is Teradata Corporation, and they announced an SEC filing that the FCPA investigation into gifts and travel expenses at a subsidiary in Turkey has ended and the company won't face enforcement. And, um, you know, it's a standard kind of language that came out in the Form 10-K. And on January 16th of this year, the SEC advised that its staff will not recommend any enforcement action. And on February 20th, 2018, the DOJ also advised the company that will not take any enforcement action and that its investigation into the matter is closed. Uh, the next one that we have is... Uh, this is from Richard Casson, uh, our uh, good friend in our, our publication where you write sometimes, Feds and FCPA probe above oil and gas services firm. This is something that's right in your backyard. Uh, Houston-based Exteran said that their two-year investigation had focused on equipment contracts for desalination plants in the Middle East. The company first disclosed the potential problem in April of 2006, and in Wednesday's filing, it said the SEC staff has notified the company that they have concluded their investigation concerning compliance with the FCPA. This is now the fifth company to report declination in uh, 2018. So it seems like, um, you know, we're, we're getting off uh, to a good start in terms of declinations. But uh, I'm sure the, there will be something new coming down the road. So let me just throw in a big shout out to uh, my good friend, Rod Hardy. Rod is the chief compliance officer at Xterran. Rod and I are both recovering trial lawyers, uh, have known each other for many years here in Houston. Uh, when I went to Halliburton, Rod went to Baker Hughes and then um, uh, worked under Jay Martin and later became the uh, chief compliance officer at, at Xterran and has took Xterran through this uh FCPA investigation with a, a declination received. So, uh, congratulations, Rod. Good job. So, uh, with the just concluded Olympics, uh, our good friend Bill Cawthon at Compliance Week has something that uh, deals with one of your favorite sports, the sport of curling. So, uh, why don't you take it from there, Tom? Sure. So first of all, uh, a huge shout out to Bill Coffin, not simply because he's my boss at Compliance Week, but because this is the fourth home run in four weeks he's hit on his blog, his weekly blog, Coffin on Compliance. So uh, congratulations, Bill. Keep it up. But what he does, Jay, is he uses the curling, uh, the Russian athlete, uh, not uh, curling under the Russian flag, but Russian athlete nevertheless, um, who was caught uh, using performance-enhancing drugs as a way to, as an entree into the subject of what do you do when you're already a one-time loser under the FCPA and you have a recidivist event. Um, so say you've got a DPA or an MPA or even a declination, and then it turns out that there is a, uh, another problem. So in my last corporate position, uh, I worked for a company that uh, that situation had occurred, and I can only assure you that uh, as uh, negatively as the DOJ and SEC might think about your initial compliance failure, if you have another one, uh, they will have an even more dim view. So, But what Bill does, Jay, is 
take this fact scenario of the Russian curler who used performance-enhancing drugs in the context of Russia trying to uh, be uh, allowed to come back in to the Olympic, the bosom of the Olympic family for the next Olympic Games, and says uh, really raises the the question of. What do you do if you're under a DPA uh, to prevent uh, new information or another event from happening? And he gives three, uh, three different things that can help them manage the risk. And I thought these were pretty creative. Uh, the first one was, and it's not one, it's one that's talked a little bit, but really not enough, I think, which is amnesty. And he says, when facing the aftermath of a compliance failure, it's crucial to root out any other problems. And to do so, he suggests offering an amnesty program to all all employees to report any other activities which may potentially violate internal or external compliance uh, protocols. Uh, This was used successfully by Siemens uh, in their uh, uh, record-setting, then-record-setting FCPA enforcement action. Uh, And it's something that, uh, if appropriate, is something you should consider. Obviously, honesty is important that any (coughs) wrongdoing detected simply um, has to be self-reported to the appropriate authorities. If something happens, you've got to tell the regulators. And finally is transparency. And going forward, he suggests that all policies and procedures have to be crystal clear for both uh, a wide variety of stakeholders. That can be uh, your employees, internal practitioners, but also for outside observers and monitors. There has to be a 100% certainty that your operations are within bounds and that there is nothing to hide. So um, a really good job by Bill Coffin. And if you find yourself under a DPA, NPA, or, or even received a declination, uh, you want to make sure that you don't have to go back and self-disclose something else to the, uh, or worse yet, have the Department of Justice find out about something else. So uh, some good advice there. Um, Next, we, um, okay, yeah, we're going to go down to the Texas-Mexico border and some banking issues. What do you have for us, Jay? Yeah, so we, we've got a couple of things. We've got an article from um, Sam Rubenfeld in the Wall Street Journal. And then we also have an article that we're going to link to in the show notes from uh, Matt Kelly. And what seems to be happening is that there are um, there's a situation where the banks are being de-risked and they are kind of refusing to do business with a lot of cash-based businesses and customers who are on the border. And part of it seems to be a little bit confusion among uh, the laws for what should be done from an AML risk perspective and how they're dealing uh, with actually putting this into function and servicing their clients. So is this something uh, new, Tom, that's been happening along the border that you've been aware of, or is this in reaction just to the uh, the new uh, statutes? No, I think it's been going on for some time, but it's really around two things. I think increased enforcement of anti-money laundering laws, particularly for Mexico and places south, but also U.S. banks now becoming more aware of um, their obligations and their risks. Uh, I think we saw the situation in Miami several years ago because there was a greater focus on Miami. And as those banks wised up and got better AML programs, the nefarious actors shifted to uh, uh, the, le- the more fertile area because there was less concern and less uh, compliance, which was on the Texas-Mexico border. So um, this was really the first time there had been a, a significant report uh, considering these issues. The 
GAO, Government Accountability Office, uh, said that uh, originally opined that these types of um, transactions created challenges for banks, really implying that simply because of AML regulations, it was uh, causing banks to, to lose customers and perhaps revenue. Matt Kelly took a look at it in terms of uh, de-risking risk and really looked at it as always, uh, as Matt does, from the ERM perspective. And I thought his uh, take on it was, look, guys, this is a risk. You've got an AML program and you've got people who can't show you that they've got clean money. Um, that's a risk for you. And if you want to take that risk, you can, but obviously the sanctions can be uh, quite high. So it's really just a, a risk issue, uh, not a regulation issue. And if we're going to have any type of substantive AML programs for banks literally anywhere in the United States, it's going to have to apply in the areas where uh, the most potential dirty money is coming. So uh, I guess it really didn't surprise me too much. Right. So next up, uh, Fresenius Medical Care, which is a German dialysis company, has reserved 200 million euros in its FCPA FCPA enforcement action. And what did uh, Jacqueline uh, Jager have to say about that? Well, really not much more than that, Jay, because uh, the information she got and other commentators or reporters had was from the uh, their latest uh, 8K filing. Um, so, uh, two, 200 million euros, about $280 million, I think at this point, uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, so it's a fair chunk of change and we'll have to wait till, uh, until if, and when I should say the, uh, matters resolved so we can get the actual claims, um, or underlying facts of the violation. But, uh, always good to see when something like this is reported because it generally means there's a resolution sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. So uh, next up, we've got a really interesting article that you found in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and it's uh, an IDN essay by Adam Winkler. And he asked the questions about what rights should corporations have? And he just really takes a, a very interesting look going back into the 18th century and um, how corporations were given rights and being able to act almost uh, as a person. But what's bringing this up now specifically are some of these uh, controversies about whether or not, um, you know, a baker in Colorado can sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple or whether or not uh, a company has a right to deny um, uh, birth control to employees because it's violating their religious liberties. So uh, how did you find the article, Tom, and what are your takeaways from it? So it was a great review, Jay, of uh, how corporate rights were originally um, brought into the legal system. The first case was in 1809 in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and how really corporations have led the, uh, in many ways, the legal discussion around uh, various rights granted to them under the Constitution and by various laws. Uh, I would point out that a uh, a series of cases in the 1870s called the Slaughterhouse Cases uh, presaged the uh, revolution in um, uh, the 14th Amendment law, which occurred in the 1930s and 40s in the United States. The same claims were made in the Slaughterhouse Cases, um, but that court said that uh, the 14th Amendment did not apply to corporations. Later, uh, 
Supreme Court ruling said that due process did apply to corporations under equal protection of the laws because corporations were persons. So there's a rich history of this. Uh, because corporations have money, uh, they can get to court more often and uh, pay to, uh, to litigate issues that are important to them. So it's probably, if you think about it, not really too surprising that a fair number of um, uh Corporate cases have gone to the Supreme Court, uh, and we, we have to take a little stop here, Jay, because I have to announce that Michigan State has defeated Wisconsin in the Big Ten Tournament. Thank you very much. Go State. Um, but uh, there are some uh, commentators now who want to amend the Constitution to uh, eliminate some rights for corporations that individuals have. Um, there are certainly downsides to that, and uh, I think it's it's an, an interesting question: is are we moving to corporate personhood? Uh, that's a great topic of many uh, science fiction thrillers that I've read. But this article by um, Adam Winkler took a took a look uh, really from the legal perspective. Uh, obviously, we've linked to it in the show notes, and I would commend this to uh, to everyone to read because it, it gives a different and fresh perspective on something that, although is very important in American life, I don't think we really focus on quite as much. So next up, we've got a, a couple articles that deal with technology. Um, one of them is uh, Anthony West exploring in uh, corporate compliance and insight. He's going to look at the top five security and compliance trends. And then you've kind of uh, followed that up with an article that you've chosen about what is the difference between big data and small data. And Ben Lockwin explains that in Pharmaceutical Online. So uh, what's your interest in those stories, Tom? So Adam West uh, uh, in an Anthony. article. Anthony Adam Wood. West was Batman. Holy smokes, Robin. Holy smokes. Um, he wrote uh, an interesting piece in Corporate Compliance Insights where he talked about <clears throat> five trends to watch in security and compliance. And those trends, I'll just go through them quickly. Companies need to ensure that they are using the latest technology to protect themselves from internal and external threats. Um, with regulations like GDPR on the top of mind, trusted immutable data, meaning data you can't change, and open access to data repositories will play a central role in compliance efforts going forward. The explosion, number three, the explosion in the volume of data will continue to grow exponentially, requiring firms to leverage new tools internally to, and externally to improve employee pro productivity. Uh, something I've written about quite a bit is AI will continue to evolve, evolve in the business conversations, allowing corporations to uh, increasingly uh, uh, increase workloads that are available for review. And finally, blockchain ledgers will become more widespread. So these are things, trends that I think we all need to follow. Uh, these are certainly things I'm going to uh, be talking about in my new podcast series, Innovation and Compliance. And that's what really led to the next article by Ben Lockwin. Uh, Ben's from your part of the world, uh, Jay, or at least your former part of the world. Uh, he is um, uh, a data scientist. He's a Ph.D. He's a double Ph.D. in uh Healthcare, uh, uh, excuse me, biology, and uh, I think uh, data science, and uh, a really smart guy. And he wrote this very interesting article about both big data and small data. And this, uh, actually, I thought of you guys, or, or affiliated monitors, I should say, when I read this, Jay, because Ben talked about the uses and misuses of big data 
but he, what his point was that really big data alone uh, is about finding correlations and small data is about finding causations. And he particularly um, noted that with small data, the way to, to obtain it and then analyze it is something that affiliated monitors does <clears throat> when it's assessing corporate culture. So he said, in small data, <clears throat> meaningful insights are often derived from anecdotes, focus groups, and other modalities <clears throat> that draw inferences <clears throat> from impossibly small data sets. And it seems to me that those are many of the techniques that affiliated monitors uses uh, when assessing cor corporate culture. So uh, it's, as always, everything Ben writes, it's a great article. I've cited him extensively in my blog post uh, over the years, and he's somebody you should uh, definitely keep your eye on from the compliance perspective. So uh, a couple of pieces of data for us. And then, Jay, uh, we ended up with um, an article by uh, Joe Mont at Compliance Week, my colleague at Compliance Week, where he talked about uh, there's some legislation at the federal level to end secrecy and workplace harassment settlements. You want to tell us about that? Sure. So the um, the law, the act is called the Sunlight in the Workplace Harassment Act, and it's uh, been sponsored by uh, Senators Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, and Representative Jackie Rosen, no relation, Democrat Nevada. And uh, basically, the flood of allegations of sexual misconduct against powerful individuals has created a moral imperative for all of us to shine a spotlight on the abuses of power in the workplace, Rosen said. The Sunset in the Workplace Act would require public companies to disclose the total number and aggregate dollar amount of disputes settled by the company related to sexual abuse or harassment. It would require public companies to disclose the average length of time it takes to resolve these complaints. It would prohibit the SEC from disclosing names of accusers and provide accusers with the option of limiting the extent to which details of the settlement are disclosed. And finally, it would require public companies to disclose disclose information on their efforts to prevent the perpetration of harassment, discrimination, and abuse by their employees. And um, it seems to be uh, a, a pretty uh, widely supported uh, measure. Uh, Senators Edward Markey, Democrat from uh, Massachusetts, Jeff Markley from Oregon, uh, California's own Diane Feinstein, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut. So um, it is uh, seems to be coming from all states. These are all Democrats, though. So, uh, you know, it sounds like there there might be a little bit of a politicization on this. But I think this is a, a timely act. And uh, with, especially with the Oscars coming up on Sunday, I'm sure there's going to be some type of uh, reaction from Hollywood uh, from the Me Too, and I think this uh, act kind of stems from what's happened and, uh, you know, been brought to light over the past six months. So, Jay, as I noted at the start of our podcast today, you're down in San Diego for the ABA White Collar Conference. I was wondering if you might have a few thoughts for us and any particular highlights. Sure. So um, this conference started off on uh, Tuesday night with a cocktail reception. And uh, as I was telling you before we got in the air, Tom, this is really an opportunity for uh, people who are practitioners in the white collar bar to get together, renew relationships and to uh, see old friends. And uh, 
about 30 years ago, this was started by Ray Benoon, and I think there was something like five people in a conference room. It's grown to over 12,000 people, and they've got a lot of great folks here who are either uh, former uh, AUSAs or people who are now in the government um, who are, or have moved to pr private practice. Uh, some of the uh, events that they discussed is there was a very interesting uh, panel I uh, attended from um, state AG enforcement trends. And these were former attorneys who are now in private practice, but they uh, worked either in the central district of California or somebody else also worked in uh, New York city. So we had uh, an opportunity to compare and contrast uh, the differences between what's happening uh within the government and then how you handle that when you are uh, working in private practice. We heard uh, from uh, enforcement updates at the SEC uh, from Stephanie Avakian, I think you say, and Stephen Pakin. And um, they really uh, said it's business as usual at the SEC. One thing was kind of interesting is that they're uh, with the new FCPA uh, corporate compliance program, uh, there is that presumption of a declination, and uh, the, the issue that they brought up is they've got a declination with disgorgement, and that's with DOJ, and unfortunately, that will usually open the door up to some type of SEC action because the SEC does not have a similar uh perspective with, uh, you know, starting off with a declination. So they said they do not uh, see any... Uh, uh, change in that, that they're going to do that. And the reason the SEC there is to deal with issuers. And if you've made uh, a mistake and you've come forward, uh, that's part of the price you need to pay. Uh, there was an FCPA uh, panel uh, chaired by um, Bob Tarun from Baker McKenzie, and they had Dan Kahn was there and also Charles Kane. So I would say... Um, you know, the fun thing today was hearing uh, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, speak. And as always, he's very eloquent, quotes a lot of history. Uh, one of the things he said is that uh, there are portraits of people that he walks by uh, when he is in the building. And he has served under, I believe, uh, eight different attorney generals. So there are Republicans and there are Democrats. And the uh, pictures that he walks by are the pictures of um, three people who served during a very tumultuous times in the Department of Justice. And I'm looking for my notes who those three people are. They were uh, Attorney Generals Jackson, Levy, and Ashcroft. And the controversies that were part of their jobs were post-World War II, the Watergate stand scandal and 9-11. And uh, the DAG just thinks about, you know, there is a, a, a duty to serve and to uphold the rule of law. And he was very eloquent, uh, especially in light of all the, uh, I guess, the animus that is coming from the executive branch and the president directed not only session, uh, sessions, but also at Rosenstein. Uh, it was uh, a very supportive crowd. Uh, it was good to have him 
take the time to uh, come out from Washington to address us. And I think it put a nice cap on the event. And uh, we are looking forward to next year already. It will be in New Orleans the day after Mardi Gras. So uh, I think <laughs> it, it could be a, a little bit of a, a, a crazy time there. And then they will be back in San Diego and uh 2020 and then they're thinking about going to the bay area and san francisco so uh uh from affiliated monitors we had uh eric feldman and don stern and then we had a couple of our colleagues from across the pond um jason sugarman and mark ransford and they're part of our affiliate rsl legal strategy so uh a great time was had by all, and uh, if anybody watched me on LinkedIn, I'm getting ready to take the train back to Los Angeles and stretch out with extra leg room, plug in, and uh, start answering emails. So that's my plan for the afternoon. Well, very cool, Jay. Uh, I need to uh, reiterate uh, my next book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, is now available for pre-sale. It's going to be published in April 2018 by Compliance Week. Uh, you can check it out on my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. And for those wondering why we're celebrating Texas Independence Day today, it is because on this day in 1836, the Texas Declaration of Independence was uh, proclaimed, and Texas proclaimed itself a republic from uh, Mexico. So um, next week, Jay, we're going to celebrate, uh, or at least remember, the Alamo in a post I have every year based upon some thoughts uh, Chuck DeRoss gave that I find are, are still relevant. So uh, we're going to be thinking about Texas independence and the Alamo for the next few days. Uh, you want to take us home? Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for uh, spending some time with us, taking a look at the week that was an FCPA. This has been episode number 92 for the week ending March 2nd, 2018, the Texas Independence Day edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I greatly appreciate it if you would write our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly roundup of all things compliance and ethics. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you will check out uh, my new book, which will be out uh, in next month, The Complete Compliance Handbook. You can take a look at it at my website, fcpacompliancereport.com. And once again, I'd like to thank Affiliated Monitors for sponsoring this podcast. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.